On the 23rd of December 1920, the British Parliament's Government of Ireland Act was formally approved by King George V. Also known as the Fourth Home Rule Bill, the Act was the first step towards partition and the ultimate exclusion of the six counties in the north from an independent Irish state. It was believed to be a temporary measure, but 100 years on, Ireland remains partitioned. To talk about the Act and its legacy, I'm joined now by Cormac Moore, a Dublin City Council historian-in-residence and the author of the book Birth of the Border, The Impact of Partition in Ireland. Cormac, you're very welcome to The History Show. Thank you, Miles. Now, the 1914 Home Rule Act, which was delayed by the First World War, was actually still on the statute books and was due to become law. What followed was obviously a very eventful six years. But how did the 1920 Act differ from what was proposed in 1914? Yeah, well, well, as you said, the 1914 Act was on the statute books. And once the final peace treaties were signed, it would have become law by default. Um, so Lloyd George set up a committee chaired by uh, British cabinet member Walter Long and Walter Long's committee devised the Government of Ireland Bill. There's two big differences where um, the first and most important one was that there would be a parliament for Ulster. So there would be actually two parliaments instead of one. One for Ulster and one for the other provinces. And then binding the two, there would be a Council of Ireland which would comprise of 20 members from both parliaments. Now, the British government... You know, publicly claimed they hoped that this Council of Ireland would lead to eventual unity. But in reality, they knew that wasn't a likely prospect. And even though some said it was temporary, I, I don't think many people at the time really believed it was going to be temporary, considering the significant and extremely hostile opposition of Ulster Unionists to being part of a Dublin Parliament. And did the British government actually think that Sinn Féin would agree to this legislation or did they even care? No, they didn't care. Well, Walter Long um, was you know, a staunch unionist. He, he was formerly Chief Secretary of Ireland and leader of the Irish Unionist Alliance before Edward Carson. He was rapidly anti-Sinn Féin. He, he, it was actually him who suggested um, using ex-soldiers to bolster the RIC which came in the guise of the Black and Tans and the Auxiliaries in 1920. Um, he didn't care. He even said to himself, I don't care what Sinn Féin think of this. This is nothing about Sinn Féin. The Government of Ireland Act was an attempt to solve the Ulster question and not the overall Irish question. And even in 1920, you had huge changes in the British administration in Dublin Castle. Most of the newcomers, like John Anderson um, and even Neville McCready, the Commander-in-Chief of the British Army in Ireland, they believed there should have been an all-Ireland solution, a, you know, a Dublin Parliament devolved government. But the, the British government were insistent on just solving the Ulster issue and then coming back to the overall Irish uh, uh, problem once that was uh, solved in their minds. Did Ulster Unionists, though, at the time actually want a separate parliament? No, um, they were very reluctant supporters of the bill, Obviously, they they were wanted to stay fully within Westminster, and it obviously was very ironic that the part of Ireland that was most opposed to Home Rule was the first part to get a Home Rule Parliament. But soon afterwards, they started to realise this is actually going to benefit us. Charles Craig, James Craig's brother, he said, actually, this is everything we fought for, everything we armed ourselves for. And he was looking to the future, even the near future, where perhaps the British Labour Party would be in power or Herbert Asquith's Liberal Party would come back into power. 
and they wouldn't be as supportive of uh, divided Ireland as Conservatives and uh, Lloyd George's coalition Liberals. Um, so he actually realised that this is actually going to give us more security, more stability by having our own parliament. And soon many other unionists, Ulster unionists, came around to that thinking. Was it the case, Cormac, that the original Northern Ireland unit that was envisaged would actually have been nine counties? Yes, originally Waterlong's committee suggested that the Ulster Parliament should be the full nine counties of, of the province. However, James Craig was always talking to the committee. Walter Long was first Lord of the Admiralty, but uh, James Craig was actually his first secretary. So he, he was um, always in communication with the British government being a part of it. And he was insistent. He, he actually even suggested in late 1919 that there should be a boundary commission, even though he was vehemently opposed to this odious boundary commission that was set up uh, with the Anglo-Irish Treaty in December 1921. But in 1919, he thought a boundary commission would have limited the amount of territory that w- you know would, would have had a nationalist majorities. Most Ulster unions believe that the best solution for them would have been a six-county, you know, it would have been sizable enough, but it would have been a two-thirds uh, a Protestant-Catholic majority. And they, they, they feared with a nine-county uh, parliament, they eventually could be outbred by Catholics. Um, so it was actually only decided by the British government to go along with the Ulster Unionist uh, request in February 1920, just as the bill was, was going through the House of Commons. And of course, this was bitterly opposed by Unionists from Donegal, Cavan and Monaghan, who uh, felt they were being left hung to dry. And Thomas Moles, the Belfast MP, admitted as, as much. He said, if, if a ship is sinking and you've only got lifeboats for two thirds of the ship's company, are all to condemn themselves to death because all could not be saved. How united were Irish unionists when it came to this legislation? The divisions within unionism had been growing for years and it was probably most uh, seen most clearly with the Irish Convention of 1917-1918. With the Government of Ireland bill, Southern Unionists were totally opposed to it. They were totally opposed to the partition of Ireland. Many left the, the Irish Unionist alliance and actually set up a, an anti-partition league you know, led by Lord Middleton, um, but, but a lot of kind of famous uh, business holders from Dublin, people like Lord Ivy and Good Bodies and Jemisons and so on. The most vociferous opponents of partition, obviously, comic would have been Northern Nationalists. Was, was there anybody really fighting their corner? Well, obviously, after the 1918 general election, Sinn Féin were the dominant Nationalist Party of Ireland. They abstained from Westminster, so they didn't... Uh, they didn't get involved in any stages of the bill or in any aspects of the bill. They, they practically ignored it. Now, a lot of people said if there was you know, a, a strong kind of 80-seat uh, nationalist presence in the Westminster, that could have made a difference. I'm not so sure because of the arithmetic in Westminster, you had Conservatives who won 339 seats, Lloyd George's uh, Coalition Liberals won 136 seats, then you had Irish Unionists making up 26 seats. That's over 500 seats. So no matter who was there, whether it was 80 or 7 as it transpired, I don't think it would have made much difference. Um, there was just 7 Irish Nationalist MPs left, 6 from Ireland and T.P. O'Connor from Liverpool. They didn't get involved either really because the Catholic Church were advising them not to get involved in the committee stages or making amendments to the bill because it would be seen as tacit approval of the partition bill. Um, Bishop uh, Derry, Charles McHugh said, we the Catholic Ulster are not going to be hewers of wood and drawers of water for Sir Edward Carson. So Joe Devlin, the leading Irish Nationalist MP, left in Westminster. He was in a quandary um, and he, did, he didn't, you know, he, he said the bill was conceived in Bedlam, but he didn't get involved in, in any 
you know, aspects of shaping the bill other than voting against it. Would it be fair to say that the Tory leader, Andrew Bonner Law, was the most vociferous champion of a separate Northern Parliament and that the Prime Minister, Lloyd George, who was the head of a minority partner in a government coalition, just kind of wanted it to go away. He wanted a solution and he wanted to get shot of the whole issue. Yeah, you know, that would be correct. Uh, Lloyd George was a prisoner of his own government. And, and as I stated, with the, the makeup of the, the huge uh, Conservative numbers, um, really affected his uh, decision-making ability. Now, Bonner Law was, was suffering from ill health as well, so he was kind of coming in and out of the government at the time. Walter Long was the, the architect of the bill. Um, but you also had Arthur Balfour. Um, when, when someone suggested what had been suggested pre-1914, you know, could we have plebiscites, county-by-county county plebiscites, Arthur Balfour, you know, flippantly said, you know, plebiscites are only for vanquished enemies. Um, so they, they decided against plebiscites, the Conservative Party, Conservative leadership early on and, you know, ramroded through with, with the uh, helping Ulster Unionists and, and not even listening or talking to, to nationalists. But yeah, and Lloyd George, as is well documented, was a very trickery, you know, slippery character. He wanted to be the person to solve the Irish question, how it was solved. You know, he, he wasn't uh, that, that bothered ideologically. Um, but people like Boner Law were, like Boner Law was known as an orange fanatic. His father was uh, originally from Coleraine. Um, so he was as hardline a, a, a unionist as you would get in, in the northeast. Were there provisions in the legislation designed to avoid any form of religious discrimination? Well, the, the Act specifically says there cannot be discrimination based on religion, but that literally went by the wayside before the, before Northern Ireland came into being um, based on the civil service. There's one example of a very senior uh, civil servant, uh, the British Treasury um, suggested H.P. Boland to be in, in uh, the Northern Ireland civil service. And they got a very simple reply from the Northern Ireland uh, government. No thanks. I think you know why. It was because he was Catholic. And you had like Richard Dawson Bates, who was the Home Affairs Minister. He found out there was a Catholic telephonist in his office so he wouldn't even answer the phone because he was afraid that all Catholics were secessionists and disloyal and she had to be removed from the office. So there was a huge uh, discrimination based on religion from the very get-go and the British government didn't follow up with the Northern government for breaking the, the Government of Ireland Act in terms of discrimination against Catholics. Written into the legislation was provision for a number of all-Ireland institutions, bodies and indeed services. What happened there? Well, well, a lot of the um, reserved services, like postal services, railways and so on, they were meant to be part of the Council of Ireland, but the Council of Ireland never convened because only one part of the Government of Ireland Act or one Parliament of the Government of Ireland Act sat and met. And then they had the Anglo-Irish Treaty, which superseded the Government of Ireland Act for the 26 counties. And those services were reserved in Westminster. So Northern Ireland didn't have control over its postal services, over railways, over customs, until you know, a solution was reached of abandoning the Council of Ireland in late 1925. Introducing legislation that established two separate parliaments was one thing, but was it not the case that a number of cultural and sporting organisations, for example, and not all inherently nationalist either, simply ignored partition? Yeah, no, I've written extensively about this in my book, that the partition of Ireland was a political and legal partition, but not a social and cultural one. Like all major religions, except for Judaism, did not structurally change because of partition. They still are all Ireland bodies, including the the three main Protestant religions. The Catholic Church obviously remains an all-Ireland body, as did most sports. 
many trade unions are all Ireland bodies and a lot of other trade organisations um, um, remain so as well. There, there was no obligation or compunction for them to divide when the country politically divided. In fact, you had a, the bizarre scenario of Ulster Unionist politicians like John Andrews and Thomas Moles who strived for a partitioned Ireland politically but wanted a united Ireland in sport. Um, and that was quite common uh, in the early decades of partition. Now, there's a perception that Edward Carson uh, took a back seat in all of this because he was a Southern Unionist with no stomach for partition and that most of the running was left then to James Craig. Though, is that actually what happened? Well, well Craig was involved in the committee in devising the bill because he was part of the British government. But publicly, he, he wasn't that involved in selling the bill because he still was with the British government. Carson, to me, Carson's... Uh, support of our opposition to partition has been uh, somewhat misconstrued. He he reluctantly supported the bill. He said it depresses him and you know he felt that he was abandoning unionists from the, the three Ulster counties that weren't going to be in the uh, Northern Ireland Parliament and the, the Southern Unionists. But he did support it and he only left the stage when a Northern Ireland Parliament was secured. And actually on his uh, resigning speech in February 1921, he says... I'm happy you've got your parliament. Now you have your parliament. You must make sure you keep it. Even that very famous speech he made in the House of Lords after the signing of the treaty in December 1921, the part where he says, you know, we were fools, we were only puppets of the Conservative Party, that wasn't in opposition to partition. That was in opposition to Sinn Féin getting too much powers and actually conceding too much to Sinn Féin. And also he was condemning the British government for trying to get the Northern Parliament into a Dublin uh, parliament I don't think by his actions you can say he was against partition. Um, he would have ideally have liked for all of Ireland to remain within the Union. But he was the main driver to make sure that six counties would have been excluded and ultimately to have their own parliament in, in 1921. Would it be fair to say that fractious and long-standing, though the legacy of partition has obviously been, at least the, the British handled it better than they did the partition of India and Palestine later, which led to hundreds of thousands of deaths. Well, that, that was, uh, like it, it actually became the template in many respects for the partitions of Palestine and India. And, and one thing they learned from the Irish partition was it was too drawn out. There was too much uncertainty. So you had a very short, snappy partitions in Palestine and India. And obviously with that came the, the horrific violence in, in both those uh, um, um, territories. Um, but, but the, you know, the legacy is still ongoing with the partition of Ireland. And, and, and one of those legacies was the Troubles. It did not solve the Irish problem. And I think we have to look at the, the overall scheme of the British Empire and including the French Empire at the time. The idea of partitions for the British was not to solve ethno-community problems. It was to increase their lifespan, you know, to, to offer some form of devolved government, but as long as the British Empire remained intact. And they weren't good solutions. They didn't solve the actual the problems that they were trying to solve. Um, so, yes, the, the violence that accompanied India and Palestine were worse at the time than the Irish partition. But then we had the Troubles as well, which, which was also an awful period of, of uh, violence. And that was directly because of the partition solution. If you'd like to read more about the Government of Ireland Act and its legacy, Cormac's book, Birth of the Border, The Impact of Partition, is published by Irish Academic Press. Cormac Moore, many thanks for joining us this evening. Thanks, Miles. That's all we've got time for on this evening's programme. Details of all our items, as well as podcasts, are available on our website, rte.ie forward slash history show. 
Our researcher is Liz Gillis. The History Show is a Pegasus production for RTE. For now, from me, Miles Dungan, and producer Logan Clancy, goodbye. Thanks for listening, and have a good new year. Follow us on Twitter at RTE History Show.